Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And from both of us, season's greetings, happy holidays, and Feliz Navidad to everyone. Our gift to you is this, our volume four bonus track, just in time for the holidays. And the album that we're going to talk about today actually, weirdly, kind of fits the criteria for both our themes we had in volume four. So yours was Respect Your Elders. Yep. And mine was Only One Great Album. And our album today is Probot, the Dave Grohl project, which is full of elder statesmen of metal as, you know, guesting on the album. And it's also the only Probot album that Grohl ever made. So by definition, they only made one great album. (laughs) And it's also an album that I had no real familiarity with. I mean, I knew it existed. I knew that this was a project that he did, but had never listened to the album from, I might've heard a couple songs in the past, but had never really listened to the album before. So this was a great one to dig into. Well, and that's precisely why he only ever made one album because like as good as it, I, I think it's a great album. I love this album. I'll say that up front unabashedly. It's a brilliant album, but nobody bought it. it <laughs> absolutely. In, ter- in commercial terms, completely flopped. Um, and I mean, it was put out by Southern Lord, so I don't think they were expecting it to sell millions and millions. Right. But nevertheless, uh, it was, I was freelancing at Metal Hammer towards the end of my freelancing days at Hammer, actually, when this came out and reaction all over the industry and even in the Hammer offices was completely mixed. Like a lot of people just had no idea what to make of it because it's almost sounds kind of like a covers album, but then the actual singers are on there and, you know, it is an odd album, but I love it. I, I love so many things about it. Um, but we'll get into all that later. Yeah. Remind me to ask you later, just because the, you were at Metal Hammer at the time, but like what the feeling about Dave Grohl was at the time, because I've never been a Foo Fighters fan. I actually own no Foo Fighters albums at all. Um, don't have any problems with their music, but I just never got into them. Uh, this has actually made me want to go and, and, uh, dive back into their catalog a little bit and, and learn more. But I was trying to think back of like, what was the vibe around, Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl at the time, like when this album came out. Well, I think that was part of the confusion. I'll, I'll just address that now, actually, because I think the the vibe around Grohl in the metal community, especially the industry, has always been that he's a great guy. Like, yeah. I've never, ever come across anybody with a bad word to say about him. He's just one of the nicest, most down-to-earth rock stars you will ever meet. Um, has, you know, no more ego than any other uh Rockstar is certainly not outlandish or anything. Um, and so towards Grohl himself, everybody is really, really well inclined. But obviously, up until this point, he'd never really done anything that you would qualify as heavy metal. You know, Nirvana weren't really a, a metal band, and Foo Fighters has always been just kind of heavy rock, not really metal. Sure. Um, and I know that some of the people in the Hammer offices, for example, liked Foo Fighters. I'm like you. I can t- take or leave them. I don't own anything by them. I won't switch them off if they come on the radio, but I won't go out of my way to listen to them. But like everybody else, I like Grohl a lot. I have a lot of time for him as a, a person and a musician. Um, and yeah, the reaction was basically like, wow, why is he doing this? What's he doing? Grohl's into metal, really? Um, that It was more just sort of bafflement than anything, which I think was also the public's reaction, which is why it didn't sell very well. Everybody was just like, what, really? <laughs> yeah, because I definitely don't remember it being like super hyped at the time or anything. No, no, not at all. You know, as far as like a, marketing around this album yeah, or anything like that. Yeah, it really wasn't. It was very much a sort of personal side project. Um, 
yeah, you know, it's I can't fault him for that. As I say, I think as as a work of art, it is not perfect, but it is great fun. Uh, and you know, there's some great songs on here. So I hope and I he's think it happy speaks with to it, why. But- I think he is, and I think it speaks to why he did it, which we'll talk about a little later. But yeah, yeah it definitely lends to the narrative that this was a, a very personal project that he wanted to put out there. Yeah, absolutely. And when you've got the you know the money and resources that somebody like and the connections that somebody like Dave Grohl has, obviously you can, <laughs> yep. you can do hundred percent. All right. So some quick follow up. Uh, we have one new patron since the last episode. Uh, somebody called Jason with no last name given. So thank you, Jason. Um, Remember, everybody out there, if you're listening and you're not yet a patron, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and join the ranks and make your pledge. Um, I will say I've received almost zero pushback since the last episode after revealing my only one great album theme. And I was really expecting a lot of pushback on that, especially from Sepultura fans. <laughs> yeah. But but I actually received almost none, uh, which just goes to show that my opinions are always correct. Yeah, well, that's what I've always told people around here. <laughs> um, quick correction. I talked about Tommy Vance, the D- the UK rock DJ on the last show. Uh, and I wondered what he was doing now. It turns out not a lot because he died in 2005, um, uh, which I completely forgot. I'm sure I must have been aware of it at the time, but I had completely forgotten. Uh, he was only 64, apparently. It's a great shame. Wow. Um, one other thing I should mention, uh, just as a bit of sort of house cleaning is that there have been i made some changes to the rss feed of the show um and we did have a couple of hiccups and thank you to andy larson uh and his partner for helping me troubleshoot a couple of them i think they should all be fine now if you're listening in a podcatching app you probably haven't noticed any difference and it should all be fine but if you're listening on the web you might want to double check your podcast app to make sure that everything's working um, because yeah, it just, you may have to go and resubscribe to the show basically, but hopefully not. Hopefully everything's, everything's fine. Um, oh, and the <laughs> one last thing while I was doing that, obviously I had to go to iTunes or Apple podcasts as they call it now to sort of, you know, fiddle around. Um, and so I saw some of our more recent reviews, which I don't make a habit of going and looking at our reviews. I know we I, should read those every once in a while. Oh, I, I oh, saw like on the one. Air. I mean, they're, they're, they're generally very good. Like most of the people who bother to review our show on iTunes say very, very nice things. And we are very grateful. Uh, but I did laugh at one guy who was absolutely livid about our lack of research on some episodes and simply wouldn't believe that I had never listened to Motley Crue before <laughs> doing oh. that episode. It was like, you can't, you know, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was basically like, I, I cannot believe that you've never listened. I refuse to believe that you never listened to that album before recording the show. And I'm like, what can I tell you, dude? <laughs> yeah, I can vouch for the fact that Anthony does not know many of the 80s bands that I bring on the show as far as their back catalog. Right. Exactly, that is not yeah. faked. That is yeah. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> that is real ambivalence towards those 80s hair metal bands for sure. 90s bands however now you're talking yeah yeah now you're back into your wheelhouse right like the last episode obviously the white zombie episode which was we had a lot of comments and seemed to be quite popular very popular um i'm gonna run through some of them uh david right off the top said i've been looking so forward to this uh let's see we had uh and then he said listening now i just got to anthony mentioning uh going to see aha and got excited as i'm seeing them tomorrow at albert hall and then again on wednesday Got even more excited when they're playing when he said they're playing a song from another album. So he was super psyched about you going to that concert. 
Um, right. Let's kind, see kind of what digression, else. but <laughs> and then he did sort of song by song commentary. But like one of one of the ones were "Creature of the Wheel," and the sample that it uses in that phrase is from Omega Man, the Charlton Heston oh, version yes. of "I Am Legend" from the seventies. Uh, I just always assume that's what the lyrics were vaguely about, and they seem to fit, which yeah, I did yeah. not know that. I did not know, and I. But it is right; it, it absolutely fits. Uh, but I had never made that connection. I will say, if you've never seen it, uh, like the the more recent adaptation, the Will Smith one is not great. Um, I am Legend. Uh, sorry, Omega Man. However, um, you know the original film version of I Am Legend is a bit of a sort of cult classic. Um, it is a seventies thing, and you know, with all of the uh good and bad that that implies but it is worth seeing if you've never seen it because yeah it is something of a classic and isn't there another one with vincent price last man on earth i think which was is that an adaptation of I yeah Am i think so too oh, i, I, I think that. it is um oh so maybe that was first Does that i think predate? that was first and then right. charlton heston was second and then this one is third if i'm not mistaken right. um i believe that and i think i might have that on dvd somewhere that might even be huh. a public domain movie now i'm not sure Oh, I don't. I don't think it's quite that old. Anyway. No, but I think it might have been one of those rights things where, like, with Night of the Living Dead, where it fell into by accident, sort of. Oh, um, right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Colin said, "Brilliant episode. Bit of a controversial opinion, but I think Astro Creep Two Thousand is the best metal of all time." Wow, uh, it's definitely my favorite. He said, "I agree that Blood, Milk, and Sky couldn't fit anywhere else on the album. I don't think it's designed to make you want to put it on again straight after listening." For me, the best closing tracks on albums are the conclusion to a story. You should be left there exhilarated and needing a slight breather before it starts up again. It's like the end of a narrative, although who knows exactly what the storyline is. And so I thought that was a really interesting point because Mm. I always think of that last song as, does it make me want to spin the record again? But I also like the idea of it being sort of the end of a story and you sort of walking away for a bit. Right. I mean, I think it depends on the album and it depends on how you approach albums. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say there are albums I love that have both of, the, you know, that both of those things. So, you know, yeah, some albums do, I mean, and that is one of them. It does kind of feel more like a conclusion to the album rather than, Hey, you know, press play again. Sure. Um, but there are plenty of albums I love, like say Master of Puppets, you know, where, uh, you know, the, what um, Damage Incorporated is the last track on that, isn't it? Or is it battery? See, that's the thing. I can't no, even no, remember. No, no, I think it's Damage Incorporated. Right, but I, this is the thing. I can't remember because as soon as I listen to it, I go, yeah, I want to listen to that again. <laughs> and I just start the album again. <laughs> well, so and I, I can't think even just remember what order it is. <laughs> contextually, when I was listening to the, like, the heaviest period of music listening in my life, obviously, was when I was a teenager. And for a lot of those years, I was working at a grocery store where I would be assigned to the parking lot to get the carts from when people left them out after they, you know, put their groceries in their car and stuff like that. And so I would bring my Walkman to work with me every day. And all I would do is go between two or three cassettes that I would bring with me to work and just listen over and over and over again. So my whole way of listening is to continue listening to the same album over and over and over again, which I think is why I think about last tracks in that way, right? Because like, if you didn't have that last track that made me want to put the cassette in again and flip it over, I'd switch to a different one, you know, because right. I'd probably have three on me, you know, or in my jean jacket, I'd have one in each pocket. And yeah. so if, <laughs> if you didn't have that effect at the end of the album, then you get swapped out, you know? I tell you what, auto reverse on Walkman's was one of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind. <laughs> Holy crap. Do you know, I just, I forgot about that until you just said it right now. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So you could literally just leave a tape running 
and you yep. know not have to just press play and never have to touch it again and it just play both sides continually <laughs> see and that was where the art of making sure that you didn't have too much blank space at the end of a side came in like filling it with b-sides or uh cover versions sometimes or even just tracks by completely different bands that happen to fit in that space yep <laughs> Well, let's see. Andy said, I haven't disagreed with Anthony this much on an album since the Slipknot episode. I thought this album was absolutely dire. So this is our dissenting opinion here. Mm. He said, my big complaint about the record is that I think the band is emphasizing all the wrong things. The album sounds pretty good, the samples and all that, okay, but almost all the actual songs are so skeletal, so undercooked, that I spent much of my listening time waiting for the songs to start, only to realize that they're nearly over. I get it. The formula here was obviously to take some simple, chunky riffs and surround them with samples and horror stylings, but I found little memorable amid the miasma. Uh, He said, if I were editing this album, I'd send all but three songs back for revisions. The three songs I liked, More Human Than Human, Supercharger Heaven, and Blood, Milk, and Sky, I think are a clear cut above the others, and I'm glad I agreed with Anthony on at least the last song. He said, uh, thanks for the episode. So, uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree that those are probably the three best tracks on the album uh, overall, but obviously I disagree that there are many, many others that are almost as great, uh, in my opinion. But hey, you know, he's he's really not going to like this episode, I don't think, then. (laughs) Or this album, I should say. (laughs) Kenneth said, great episode in a great volume. I love this album so much. The atmosphere, the huge stompy beats, and the samples are genre best. It is pretty rare to find an industrial album that's actually fun, and this is just wall-to-wall grinning for me. Uh, He said, apart from iZombie, which I've never liked. He said, I still don't understand how I'm not sick of more human. I've heard it so many times, but as soon as that intro starts, I find myself looking for a dance floor. Looking forward to the next volume. That's true, though, isn't it? It's just such such a catchy tune. It's, uh, yeah, hard to get tired of it. Yep. Dave said, this was a fun and timely episode for me because I've been rediscovering White Zombie and listening to Zombie solo albums thanks to my vacation to Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Orlando this year, which had a Hellbilly Deluxe-themed scare zone where they played music from the album and had actors dressed up as characters from the videos. He said, at the beginning of the episode, I was ready to argue against Anthony's one good album theme since I discovered Zombie with Lost Exorcisto and felt very nostalgic about it. I also really like Hellbilly Deluxe, but it's hard to divorce my feelings about that from my great vacation. Ultimately, though, I thought if I was going to revisit a White Zombie album, it would be this one. So he dug it. Mm. And then uh, coming in from Scott, to exactly no one's surprise, I dislike everything about this album and this band, (laughs) starting with the song titles and ending with the songs. Wow, he did, that is specific. He said, there's nothing on this album or any album with Rob Zombie that is even remotely appealing to me. Do not like at all. That's I'm just not enough. sure where he stands on that. <laughs> yeah, speak your mind. I mean, you know, it's I can't talk. I feel that way about Vince Neil or, you know, it's just... <laughs> well, you'll be happy to know, Anthony, that Vince Neil is working with a trainer now to get in shape for this Motley Crue tour that's happening in the next year with Def Leppard and Poison and uh, Joan Jett. So he's going to be in fine form come tour time. Do you mean a vocal trainer? I think an all-around vocal, uh, fitness, nutrition, all that kind right. of stuff. I, there's rumors that it was part of the agreement for them to come back together and go on tour, that he was going to pull it together for this, because they're on tour with Def Leppard, who keeps themselves in very good shape, yeah. and uh, Joan Jett, who's still out there rocking, and Poison, who also puts on a very good live show. So, uh, yeah, they have... They're surrounded by other bands that are still performing at a pretty high level. 
Right, so the last thing they want is for everybody to go and go, whoa, it was great, apart from Motley uh, Crue. Apart from yeah. Motley Crue, yes, yeah. absolutely. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, all right, last one here. David said, Astro Creep 2000 was the metal album that all the non-metal kids were into in high school. It kind of opened the floodgates for a lot of us to be comfortable with the trappings and themes of metal. Lots of great memories tied to this album for me. Driving around country roads at night, blasting Electric Head Part 2. He said, I think Rob Zombie's first solo album was a natural progression, and it's still pretty good. But everything after that first album drifted downhill. My first concern was with him and Korn, but then they toured together and he put on a great show. Oh, my first concert was with him and Korn. And they toured together and he put on a great show. Go-Go Girls, Walking Robots, Flames, etc. He said for next year's new metal theme, and I know that's not the theme, uh, you know, totally. He said, I'll throw in that a lot of us have suggested Gojira, and I think Ghost is another good candidate since you're both fans. Thanks as always. Right, yeah, so uh, thanks everybody for giving us feedback on that previous episode. Uh, remember, everybody else, if you want to go and join in on the Facebook group, it's at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. We really do love uh, hearing from everyone and from our wonderful community um, that we, that, well, I was going to say that we've built there, but really you and I haven't done all that no. much to build it. It really it's has been. It's been a lot of referrals. Yeah, it really has been the listeners themselves who've built it. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's wonderful community of of headbangers and metal lovers who it's a bit of an oasis from the rest of the internet at times right agreed yeah i'm so thankful for our community and obviously over the years that we've been doing the show we've become friends with a lot of our listeners and often communicate online and and all of that stuff but just to you know i had recently been traveling for work for a couple of weeks and hadn't had a lot of time to be online and every time i'm away for a little bit and I come back and I jump into the Facebook group. It's so awesome to see the conversations and the content that people are sharing and the recommendations and things like that, that have sort of happened since the last time I was able to check in. And it is at a point now where, and it has been for a while, where this community just has its own momentum. And so whether there's a new episode that just came out of the podcast for people to react to and talk about, or it's that time in between, the group keeps on going. And I love that. It's it's a place that I now, even as someone who does the podcast, can feel like I can come to and have great discussion with my friends about music. And that's really all we've ever wanted. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, people sharing photos from gigs they've been to and yeah. recommending new music and new albums and stuff that are nothing at all to do with episodes of the show. I love that. Me too. Absolutely love it. It's it's an It's a great place. It's a great community. And we are thankful for it every single day. We really are. All right, so let's move on to the album of the episode then, Probot. Uh, it was, it started several years before it was released. So uh, I dug up, there's not a lot of press about this, as you said. There I was, know. Wasn't, there wasn't a lot of publicity, but I dug up an MTV News, would you believe, oh, okay. article. okay, I like it. Titled, Dave Grohl preps a, quote, death metal supernatural with Probot. And what they mean by that is the Santana Yep. record supernatural which i don't i'm not familiar with but i gather featured lots of guest musicians all um, i keep thinking about is rob thomas from one of those it's not goo goo dolls it's uh i can't remember but it's one of those one of those bands where they did uh i forget what the name of the song is people will know because it's like an earworm type of song i, I won't even uh try to research the title but yes it, santana had a huge hit with this guy when that album came out and it was an album of collaborations with different artists. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And apparently, according to this, uh, Tom Aria of Slayer was supposed to be guesting on this album as well at some point. Um, but obviously that never, for some reason, I can only assume never happened because I cannot believe that it happened and then they decided not to include it on the album. Right, it, it could have been the worst song in the world that would have been on the album. You'd still put it there, yeah. 100%. You know, there's no way you wouldn't add that. Um, so I can only assume that it couldn't happen for some reason, scheduling or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it was... So I mean, I'll just read a few bits of, from the article. It says, with production of the next Foo Fighters album up in the air, this is from 2001, January 2001, frontman Dave Grohl is exploring his metal mentality with Probot, a collaborative side project involving heavy metal luminaries, King Diamond, Tom Ari of Slayer, Motorhead's Lemmy Kilmister, Thomas Gabriel Warrior of Celtic Frost, among others. The project started about a year ago, so he started this at, like, at the turn of the millennium, yep. uh, when Grohl and Adam Casper who was engineer, mixer, and producer of the Foo Fighters' 99 album, There's Nothing Left to Lose, recorded seven instrumental metal tracks in Grohl's basement studio. Apparently, as a response, get this, to the first single from that album, Learn to Fly, which Grohl described as, quote, the most middle-of-the-road piece of shit I've ever written in my life. It's so boring, and I thought, I can't believe it's the first single. It doesn't represent the rest of the record. So I was just kind of itching to record something I was really excited about. Uh, I love the Foo Fighters record, but there's a part of me that's always been kind of this metalhead kid. And that well, really sums up the whole album, isn't it? Is that you can, it's, it's, you know, it's the whole album bleeds like a kid who grew up listening to these bands and now just wants to emulate their songs and work with the people that he, you know, idolized when he was a kid. Well, and on that note, I pulled an interview that he did with Modern Drummer in 2004. And one of the questions that they had asked him, you know, and, and this was sort of where he was at with Foo Fighters at the time, they said, had you lived out your singer-songwriter role at this point? And he said, this was really about challenging myself. I hated the sound of my voice, and I questioned everything, my guitar playing, my songwriting, and especially my drumming. To strip it all bare was a real test. And they said, so what does ProBot represent? And he said, ProBot is just me going back to my roots because I needed to prove to myself that I still had that music in me. And they said, well, when did you start listening to hardcore metal? I started listening to underground American hardcore in 82. I had a relative that turned me on to punk rock, and by 84, I was completely immersed in it. That scene was totally independent and underground. I had my own fanzine, and I started a band. It really instilled that do-it-yourself ethic. I started discovering bands like Venom, Motorhead, Slayer, and Merciful Fate, bands that were similar to hardcore in that aggression, rebellion, and energy of the music that was still there, but they were even nastier. And so, you know, this was for him, I think, kind of proving to himself at this point in time that he could make the type of music he loved if he really set his mind to it. Right. If he wasn't. Yeah. It's not that Foo Fighters was the only thing he was capable of doing anymore. Um, and that's from 2004. So that's when the album came out. And like yep. I say, the interview I've got from uh, dug up here was 2001 and he'd already been working on it for a year before then. So that's an unusually long time for somebody like Grohl who doesn't tend to take a long time between albums. And even at the time that the uh, MTV news article was out, it, the article ends with whether ProBot's death metal supernatural will ever resurface remains to be seen. So they weren't even sure whether it would be released. No, and there um, was another one I saw where he had mentioned that even back in 1999, ideas had started kicking around for this. And so, right. and, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, he would record these instrumentals and then he would send copies of them to people that he thought it would fit for this particular project. And he sent out more than he ended up 
obviously putting on the album. And so, yeah. you know, for people that got back to him and that were interested in it and all of that kind of stuff, then it sort of took off from there. But he, you know, he would put these things together and he would send them out and see if people were interested. And so it, it pieced itself together over a period of time for sure. Right. Yeah. It's not like it was just two months in the studio to record the whole album. It was clearly done piecemeal and, you know, at different times and also with different levels of involvement. I mean, one of the things about the album is that obviously they're all guest singers, but only only a few of them, a few of them do play their own instruments on yep. the tracks, but not many. And they're the people that you'd expect, like, you know, uh, Kronos from Venom and Lemmy from Motorhead play their own bass. Yep. Uh, you know, that's, you never, can you imagine asking Lemmy to sing on your track and not letting him play bass? I mean, that's just, that's not going to happen. No, if uh, he wanted to play drums, he could play drums on the track right. too. Like whatever he wants to do, he's going to do. Yeah. Kim Thale from uh, Soundgarden plays guitar on a couple of tracks. Um, yep. uh, Wino from St. Vitus plays guitar on the track that he sings on. But those are the exceptions. And the rest of it really is like, Grohl plays everything, which is why there are almost no guitar solos on the album, I'm sure. But he plays everything else. He plays the guitars. He wrote all the riffs and everything. He plays the bass, plays the drums. Uh, that's pretty impressive, really. Yeah, I think the only other one is Jack Black, I think, plays guitar on his oh, right. um, particular track as well. But yeah, I mean, he. this was Grohl putting together these riffs and rhythms, and this is his deal. Yeah, it's. Uh, I will say actually, um, regard quite apart from this album, Grohl put out a thing. I think he just released it on YouTube uh, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, called Play, which is literally just him playing, uh, like composing and then playing every instrument on a sort of twenty-minute rock track, instrumental rock track. It's really good. Like if you like, you know, a bit of rock music and you like watching somebody be really good. <laughs> Lots of different things because yep. it's filmed in split screen. So, you know, you, it's filmed as if there are six clones of him in the studio all playing at the same time. Um, but it's also a pretty good piece of music. Uh, yeah, I definitely recommend people seek that out and listen to it, regardless of what you might think of this album. Yep. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, like we said, it, he said it was a dream come true. It clearly was. Um and I think that's kind of, I mean, you don't really need to read any interviews, I think, even to to get that, because just listening to the album, if you're familiar with any of the bands on this album, it's pretty obvious that he has immersed himself in their music enough to reproduce their kinds of music. And that's one of the things that I really love about it. It kind of proves his metalhead status, whatever you want to call right. it, just because... I mean, I'm, I admit, I'm not completely familiar with all of the bands represented on here. Same here. But of, the, yep. but of the ones I do know, I think between us, we probably have the whole thing covered. And of the ones that I do know, they are excellent pastiches of the bands concerned. And you can't do that. You can't write a pastiche that good without knowing the music intimately, you know? Uh, and every song of the album is different. Many of them could, I think, fit on those bands own albums without raising too much of an eyebrow maybe as a b-side you know because right. like i say there's a, there's a lack a of solos and yeah you know but you could put them on there and people would go yeah sure whatever yeah um, that fits yeah it's and i think being able to write so many songs in so many distinctive styles that are accurate to the bands that he's emulating 
I mean, yes, it is emulation and it is pastiche, but even so, I think that's kind of incredible. Well, and also a nice, obviously he completely respects and loves these, loves these bands and it's a nice love letter to them that he kind of did it justice, you know, so he can feel good about that walking away that, you know, regardless of album sales or anything else, like he accomplished what he wanted to do. He wanted to capture the feel of the music he grew up loving. And he also wanted to show himself that he could still create that kind of music if he put his mind to it. And he did that. Yes, absolutely. Um, and even some of the bands play these songs live. Some of the bands of the singers involved play these songs live. Which is so awesome. I, I mean, that's just, th- that almost is more validation for him, I have to feel, than the fact that they appeared on the album to start with. Do you know what I mean? Like, that they were so happy with how it turned out that they're like, yeah, actually, let's play that live because people will have heard it. Why not? Which is awesome, too, because imagine as a fan who, you know, like, and we'll get to the songs especially that we feel like really capture that vibe, but I would be psyched to go to a concert and have one of the bands that I love play this because I would never think I would hear it from them live. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, exactly, yeah. So, as I say, and I think for Grohl, I, I think surely that has to be almost more validation than the album itself, in a way. Um, so, yeah, as I say, I think the whole thing is, it's you know, he didn't need to do it. No, nope. like, He was already enormously successful from I mean, there were bands. four albums in. This came out after right. the fourth album, which I think is one by one of the Foo Fighters. So they're well established at this point in time a, as a successful rock act at well, this and, point. And as a, a successful post-Nirvana. For, absolutely. Like, he, he had, had he, yeah. nothing to prove. You can understand right. that, uh, that following Nirvana, he may have wanted to prove to people, look, I'm not just the long-haired drummer in Nirvana. Fine. But as you say, by this point, and even by the point he was recording these, he had nothing left to prove. Right. There was no doubt of his ability as a musician, a guitar player, a singer at this point, even though he was questioning those things about himself. Like, he had firmly established that he, I, I think everybody's, ta- um, at least mine, not being a huge Foo Fighters fan, was like, holy crap, the freaking drummer from Nirvana is a pretty amazing musician. Yeah. You know, by this point in time, was <laughs> was... That's kind of what, because I was never a big Nirvana fan either, but to see him, I was like happy that he was, because the type of music that he makes in the Foo Fighters is more in my wheelhouse than what he was doing with Nirvana. And so it was cool that he had like shown the world that, holy crap, look at all the different things that this guy can do. And so then for him to be like, oh yeah, I'm a diehard metalhead too. And here's my love letter to metal um, is pretty awesome. It is. It, I'll tell you what it reminds me of, actually. The uh, Which was after this. I think it was after this anyway. Was that whole business with the mixing desk from Sound City. Um, with that uh, documentary film that he made. Oh, the what? one where he went to different places around and recorded locally with, with different musicians and stuff like that. Is that the one you're talking about? Uh, I, oh, I, or maybe sure. it's another one. Yeah, that might be a different one. The one I'm thinking about is where the, the sound desk, the famous sound desk at Sound City Studios, basically Sound City Studios were being revamped, uh, I think, refurbished and what have you. And they were going to get rid of this famous desk where things like uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors was recorded. Oh, I yes. Think, I think Appetite for Destruction might have been recorded there as well and stuff. And, you know, this desk's legendary. And he basically bought and rescued the entire thing and spent God knows how much money to you know, get it out of there safely and reinstall it in his studio at home. 
which I assume means in Los Angeles rather than Seattle. I can't actually remember now. It's a while since I saw the, the film. The point being, it cost him a fuckload of money for really, you know, no benefit other than just sheer nostalgia um, and the ability to say, hey, I've got this desk, <laughs> this right. famous desk, you know. And oh, do you um, want to come to my house and record a song on this desk? Exactly, exactly. And this album feels like that in in a way. And that is self-indulgent, but it's also kind of cool that a guy who's got that much money is willing to spend quite a bit of it just doing these things that are cool. And create a cool album that even though it, he knew, I'm sure, from the beginning that it wasn't going to be this amazingly selling album, but to put that out there with some of his childhood heroes. Right, yeah. I, I'm sure even in his wildest dreams, he would never imagine that it this would sell even half of what a Foo Fighters album would sell. Right. But yeah, clearly that wasn't the point. Um, so yeah, as I say, I just, it's one more thing that makes me love him because you know, you, uh, you want the people who are successful and massively wealthy to be the good ones. Right. So let's go on to the album then, uh, and onto the tracks. So we'll start with album opener, obviously track one centuries of sin featuring Kronos of venom. I can't think of a better opener from this group of songs that are on this album than this song. I think you could make an argument for any of the first three, to be fair. I think any I of do the, think I, the first three are three of the strongest songs on the album, although, and yeah. I, but I think one and two are, are a cut above. But I, like this song, the build, Kronos uh, in particular, is so good and so over the top and so like, uh, just embracing the joy of putting this song together that I just, I, to me, it's, it's how I want this album to open. Actually, that's a fair point because yeah, you know, it starts off, it kind of builds and builds in speed and intensity as you go through the song, doesn't it? Until it yeah. ends with just like this mad, mad ending with him choking. I love it. It's <laughs> so awesome. Like, it's so like, it's obviously a bit tongue in cheek, but I just love the whole. I mean, I love the part where it's starting to get thrashy at about three minutes, and he's just screaming, "Come on!" Like he's just he's yeah. he's egging the song on to get more aggressive. Like, yeah. well, I just how, love. How familiar it. are you with Venom? I mean, other than knowing that they're legendary and and have, having heard music over the years, not 
a big Venom fan. I mean, they're similar to Celtic Frost for me in that I, you put their name up there and I respect the name and I know they've been around forever and same thing, but never was a huge fan of Venom. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, if you know Venom, this is this is one of those tracks that is clearly influenced by their their first couple of albums specifically it would fit right in although actually it's better played <laughs> well but i'll say this like and, and this is a testament to this whole album is that there were a lot of bands that i have a passing familiarity with on this album that i was like i'm going to go dig in i actually started looking up some of, some of venom's back catalog after listening to this because i freaking loved this opening song so much um yeah, well, and it, like I say, it is very similar to their first couple of albums, this one. And Kronos, I mean, yeah, he sounds great. He's in good form. The reason I mention it is because uh, I was going to say that Venom were, they really straddled that line between self-aware cheesiness. Like, you know, they're from Newcastle, which is a very, very, like, hard-working class city in England. You know, it's not it's not like the glitzy media lights of London or anything. And so they are very, very aware that they look silly and it's all a bit kind of, you know, camp and what have you. But at the same time, they take the music extremely seriously. So they, they really do straddle that line. So the, the, as you say, the, you can tell in this song that Kronos is having the time of his life and deliberately going over the top. And that's kind of what Venom did. That was their thing. And they were one of the first bands to do that. Because they've been, you know, they're a really, really old band. Yep. Uh, it's important to remember, you know, they were l- doing, well, you know, they literally had an album called Black Metal um, in right. the late 70s and very, very early 80s, long before most other bands were, which is why they're a legendary band. Yeah. And I think the other stuff that I love about the song is it establishes sort of the production that you can expect from this album. Um, it's very raw. Grimy, you know yeah, yeah. the the and and not surprisingly the drums are very large in the mix um which i love and he he's freaking fantastic i mean it, it, this song is just raw it's got a great sort of rolling riff and between that and chronos you know growling and snarling his way through the song like it's it's such a fun track to open the album with that I love it. And the choking ending thing is just absolutely perfect. Like I love everything about it. And I love that they kept it. That's the other thing. You you could imagine, you know, other producers going like, yeah, we'll, we'll fade that out so that we don't hear you choking, but like, no, no, (laughs) we want that. (laughs) Right. No, that's the perfect ending to the song. Apparently Kronos recorded three completely different songs to this, to this music. It was, I couldn't remember if it was him or Max Cavalera that had recorded multiple versions to see whichever one, you know, they liked best. Well, Max may have done it as well, but Kronos definitely did because yep. he, he's on record saying, yeah, he make, com- recorded three completely different songs and then just sent them all to Grohl and said, choose which one you want to use. Which and is so awesome. Yeah. He chose um, correctly. He, he did, although I would love to hear those other songs. I would love to hear, you know, there's other completely different songs with the same music. Cause I find that sort of thing fascinating. There's a track on REM's second album reckoning. Um, and on their B sides and rarities compilation. And one of them, and I cannot remember which one it's on. Um, but on one of their early compilations of B sides and stuff, they have an outtake where Mike Stipe sings 
basically sings, reads the back of an album of gospel music or something and sings the words on the back of this album telling you about the gospel choir and stuff to that backing track. And the idea was that he was having trouble getting the vocal right. And so they said, Leah, just do something different with the words so that you're not thinking about the words and, you know, get back into it. And apparently it worked on the very next take. He nailed the song. But that song in itself, even though the words are just, you know, blurb about a gospel choir, is actually really fascinating to listen to. I yeah. love that sort of stuff. So I'd love to hear those other Kronos tracks. I'm sure I never will, but I well, really hey. wish I could. By 2024, we're going to be looking at the 20th anniversary reissue of this album. And so when that happens, <laughs> maybe you he puts know. out like a three-disc compilation with all of the demos and the original instrumentals and everything else. Like you, you could maybe a new track or something like that. So if, if Dave's listening to this, like that's what Anthony's looking for. I'm sure he is. Hello, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So let's move on to uh, track two. Yes. As we mentioned, Max Cavalera from Sepultura singing Red War. Here's why I love this as the second song, because the first song is so good that this song takes it to the next level. Like if the first song was sort of tongue in cheek, um, a little bit campy, lots of fun. This one is like, oh, no, we're we're making real metal music on this album, too. Right. Because this song freaking feels like it's a Sepultura song. And Max is amazing. On He's this on song. fire. Yeah. On yeah. Fire and not to mention the main rhythm during the verse. First of all, the the guitar coming in in the beginning is so good. I love I love the music of this song. I love how it picks up and how it becomes just this barreling wall of sound. And then Max comes in with the vocals, and it's amazing. Literally, the first note I have about this song is that, as far as I'm concerned, this is a lost Sepultura track. Yes, it is, dude, it's so faithful but also a really fucking great song. It really so is good. just, you know, by itself, it's a great song. You've got the Igor style drumming. You've got the stop start rhythm in the chorus, the open string riff, the, the five, eight riff in the middle eight. It's the, the only thing that's missing really is a solo from Andreas. Right. You know, if it had that, you would listen to this and go, well, yeah, it's a Sepultura track. You would not be able to, because even the production fits because it's the sort of production that Sepultura had on their, you know, most famous albums. Well, and then at like the two minute mark where it just fades into the machine gun fire of the guitar. 
you know, and yes. he's speaking the sign of the cross. I carried a war. So freaking awesome. Yeah. Well, and that's what I said. That's the five, eight riff. And even that, oh my the, God, the, so the rhythm of that is so sepultura. It's, I mean, obviously it's very, very common now, but uh, yeah, it, the whole thing is just, there's not really a lot to say about it because it's such a good track. It's just, yeah, it sounds like Sepultura and it's really good. It's freaking <laughs> what, what great. Do you need to know. <laughs> and Grohl's drums are just, you can tell that he's playing. I, I feel like he's one of those drummers where you kind of always feel like he's playing with, with joy mm. when he plays the drums. But here, dude, he's just like all, he's just so like hammering those drums. I just love it. Yeah, he really is. And I mean, this is the only song on the album where he gets to do that style of drumming that Igor popularized. Um, And so, yeah, he does seem to really go all out (laughs) for it. And the end, yeah, it just barrels towards the end, like relentless. So good. Fantastic song. Yeah. Um, As is, and I I probably like this one more than you for obvious reasons, but track three is Shake Your Blood. This was the, I think, the only single from this album because, of course, it features Lemmy. And the video features the dozens and, and the dozens of girls, the suicide yeah. girls as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm guessing, was this maybe the only track of this album that you'd heard before, you know, we did the album? Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, just obviously going back and looking through, there actually is a video about the making of the video for, uh, for this as well on YouTube right. that you can sort of look up. But yeah, it was definitely the only familiarity that I had with this album. And again, Sure sounds like a metal motorhead song to me. You know, like he he certainly captured what he was looking to capture here. And I know Lemmy's playing the bass on this song, but it feels like motorhead. It really does. It's got that groove, it's got the repetitive riff. It's even played higher up the neck than most of the other tracks, which again fits with Motorhead. Like, you know, Motorhead are not one of these detuned uh, you know, like down the bottom end C sharp. Right tuning bands they've always been like they're quite happy to play right up on the neck and play quite high chords uh it's the way they play them that makes them aggressive and makes it motorhead absolutely um and of course lemmy's bass playing which is so distinctive and the sound of his bass is so distinctive that that immediately that adds you know that makes up 50 percent of why this track sounds like motorhead um well and, and it's a three minute on the nose song like yeah. it is, it is a Motorhead song. Yeah, his voice is the other fifty percent. I was going to say. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, the ly- and the lyrics. I mean, you know, it's Lemmy. <laughs> it's every Motorhead track, as I've said before, is either sex, war, or rock and roll. 
and this is two out of three. So you know, and I, I remember <laughs> seeing in a in a in an interview I read about this where he wrote this in like fifteen minutes or something like that. Like the oh, yeah, the, yeah. and he was like, yeah, it's not that complicated. It's rock and roll, which is pretty much his attitude about you know songwriting in general. Yeah, well, and I was going to say that wasn't that wasn't unusual for him, even with Motorhead tracks. You know, he famously wrote uh, lyrics to things like "We Are the Road Crew" while on the tour bus one night. You know. Uh, before getting to a gig the next day it's just that was how he worked because yeah again his lyrics they're good lyrics but they're not complicated um yeah and yeah it's rock and roll i also like how they hide the fact that there's no solo by letting let me do one (laughs) Uh which that's the one thing that is a bit odd because that almost never happens in motorhead (laughs) it's i wouldn't say never it does there's one or two tracks but it is rare you know mostly because obviously motorhead always had blistering lead guitarists yeah um there was normally a lead guitar solo so instead here it's like well i'm not going to do one so why don't you do one instead <laughs> well but i mean other than that drop the song on any motorhead album and it's right at home it really is yeah 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 uh so we, as i said i think we agree those are the three strongest tracks on the album no question but uh you know, what follows is still pretty good. And in fact, one of my overall favorite songs in the album is still to come. So let's move on to track four, and that is Access Babylon, featuring Mike Dean of Corrosion of Conformity. I mean, this is very sort of punk thrash, hardcore. It's a minute and 24 seconds. It's just straight ahead, you know? Yeah, it really is. I'm I'm not massively familiar with Corrosion of Conformity, but when I first heard this, uh, I you know, I'd heard a, a bit. And when I first heard this, I was like, well, this doesn't sound like anything I've heard of that band, you know, on Headbangers Ball or whatever. Um, but then I found out that's because Mike Dean was the original bassist and sang on a couple of albums when they were still a punk crossover band. Yep. Because he listened to COC now, and they're much more sort of what we think of as straight-up 90s, 2000s metal. Yes, um, and that was my familiarity with them, is when they started getting the MTV airplay and stuff like that for their more mainstream stuff. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, when I first heard this, I was like, oh, but that doesn't sound like what I've heard of them. And yep. then, yeah, I looked into it and realized. And so if you listen to an early album, which is the stuff, as you said, in that interview that Grohl was saying, he, around the time that he was getting into this stuff, if you listen to an early album of theirs, uh, such as Animosity, which Mike Dean sings on, you can see where this track comes from. You can Then you can go, oh, yes, okay, this is clearly that era of COC that he was referencing. And it is a real, you know, it is a real punk crossover thrasher track. Um, more or less the same riff all the way through. You know, with just changes in dynamics and a couple of different chords in the chorus. It's not even 90 seconds long. And that well, includes that's the, the thing, build-up. Is, 
it doesn't have time to do a lot of anything else, right? It's just right. very straight ahead, which, again, is obviously what he was going for, given who he had on this track and the vibe that he was trying to capture. Um, but, yeah, it's a it's a real palate cleanser from what we've had for songs one, two, and three. It is, absolutely. You know, so one, two, three, four, all metal, very different. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's kind of cool. I will say about this track as well, actually, even though it's less than 90 seconds long, it has a decent set of lyrics and they're good lyrics as well. Um, because I, I like that they are, you know, sort of multi-layered. Like you, you could read those lyrics and at first glance think, oh, well, this is about, you know, hypocritical politicians and the state of the world and all that. But then you look closer and you're like, oh, actually, no, I think this is him laying into like old punk bands that sold out, which yep. includes corrosion of conformity. Right. <laughs> It's like, hmm, you got a chip on your shoulder there, Mr. Dean. We're going out on a limb. Our people are about to disown us now. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's yep. the very first line, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's Success uh, comes knocking and we're dabbing. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, that's, I'm reading the same lyric sheet as you. It's actually doubling if you listen to, they got that wrong. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's the same, your people call my people, what's this, I'm skeptical, success come knocking and we're dabbling. It's, you know, yeah. Uh, what is it? Uh, force field limbo caught in mid-strata, funds evaporate, so-called friends scatter. Yep. As I say, it's, uh, you know, it's not specific, but I think it's quite clearly about, yeah, old punk bands that, you know, forgot the cause, as it were. Well, and that's such a metal argument, right? I mean, that that's... Especially in sort of rock and metal, you know, the whole idea of like selling out and changing your sound in order to go mainstream and get that success and all that kind of stuff. There's that is such a core sort of aspect of metal fandom, metal bands, the relationship in bands, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's never gone away. You know, even in these, even in these days when nobody expects to make any money from music, even if you do sell out. Um, it's still that whole thing about authenticity and staying true to your roots and your base and all that is still an argument that the metal community has with itself. A hundred percent. I mean, look at how much we value it just as longtime metal fans, right? You look at a band like Mm -hmm. Slayer, which is just a model. You look at a band like Motorhead, models of consistency, even in the rock world, ACDC, models of consistency around that. And there's that's held in such high regard as opposed to changing your sound to fit the times and stuff like that yeah yeah all right moving on then to track five silent spring featuring kurt brecht from dirty rotten imbeciles
Yeah, DRI. So again, very much uh, crossover um, type of song. So I feel like four and five are are meant to be sort of that connected as you said the palate cleansers yeah the the connected uh sort of crossover nod so it's almost like we're going through different eras of metal and genres of music and stuff like that and uh and i like this song i think uh kurt does a great job on this song yeah so i i like it but i am it sounds like you'd heard of dri and you were at least partly familiar with them before because i had literally never even heard of them before hearing this album yeah, well, they, as far as crossover, are considered to be pioneers of that. I was not a huge DRI fan, but my my buddy John, who he and I are, have sort of grew up metalheads together, while we were into more of the thrash side of things, uh, he had a brother who got that DRI tattoo, which I'm sure you've seen. It's the, it is the, like, traffic sign mosh guy that is associated with, with DRI. I'll have to send you a picture of it. Like, yeah, as soon I'm as you sure see it, you'll be like, that. you'll be like, yep. And their album was called Crossover. Um, they had another one, which I think is either three of a kind or four of a kind. I, I'm sure the DRI fans out there will correct me on that, but, um, yeah, they were very big in that movement. So having Kurt Brecht on this album is a big nod to, you know, his love of crossover thrash for sure. Yeah. But I, I like you, I do really like this song. I love how I, this in an album of fairly stripped down and raw songs, this one feels really stripped down and raw. Um, and you've got the bass rolling along. You've got a, a, a nice little feedback touch at the end of the chorus. It's, it's well put together, but it is a really, really raw track. But there's a lot of energy in it. Well, and I just love the way he sings, that's not the way that I am. Like, I just, yeah. I think he does a great job with that. And it, it fits the song so well. And whereas the song before it, you know, Access Babylon didn't have a lot of time to do anything different, even though this song is stripped down, it has a little more room to breathe. True. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I dig it. it, It's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good song. Um, and then, uh, next is track six, ice cold man, uh, featuring Lee Dorian of, uh, napalm death and cathedral and Kim Thale on guitar, of course, of Soundgarden.
Yeah, and I gotta say, this is the first song that felt like it was a bit of a misstep for me. Oh, you're killing me. Is, is this your favorite song on the album? <laughs> this is one of my favorite songs on the album. Really? Because this, yeah, up until this, this point, I felt like we were just on a roll. <laughs> and then we hit this one, and I'm like, I don't know if I feel this one as much. Oh, man, no. But go I, ahead. This, Tell me why you love it. I, I just love everything about it. Like, Kim Thale's guitar is wonderful and very Kim Thale. Um, this, I mean, this is clearly a... So the weird thing about this track is it is clearly a cathedral emulating song not napalm death um cathedral was the band that dorian formed after he quit napalm death uh and cathedral was well they started out as a straight doom album um and then they sort of morphed into a doom stroke black sabbath almost black sabbath tribute style band uh you know very sort of trad metal with a bit of groove um Uh very good their first couple of albums are really good first one was called forest of equilibrium um, released in 91, just two months after Nevermind. Um, and, uh, and then the ethereal mirror, which is their, uh, their only, I think major label, uh, album, which is their most popular as you'd imagine. Um, but the funny thing is that cathedral formed in 89, then first album was released as I say, like after Nevermind. So it's like, well, hang on. When was Grohl a kid listening to cathedral then that couldn't have happened. So right. I think. I've always suspected that he got Dorian on this album more out of a love for early Napalm Death than anything, but have then but then decided to do a cathedral style song for the album uh, because, like I said, they were basically kind of at that point basically a Black Sabbath revival band almost, um, which is why you've got that groovy sped up bit at the end of this track. Yeah, around three forty-five, it really picks up. Yeah, yeah, Cathedral did that a lot, um, but yeah, I love it. This could easily be a song from uh, Ethereal Mirror. Uh, it reminds me specifically of a track called Ashes You Leave from that album, which is one of my favorites as well. Um, I think it's brilliant. Uh, based on this, I would happily listen to a whole album of Grohl doing doom metal. I really would. <laughs> well, it doesn't surprise me that this one really resonated with you, and maybe it doesn't surprise you why this one didn't uh, you know, resonate with me as much. I guess that's true, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I love it. In fact, to the point where... Uh, I think, yeah, so this and the track Ashes You Leave that I just mentioned, actually, I used both of them as titles in uh, Wasteland. That is awesome. You know, know, every issue of Wasteland was named for a song, and one of them was called Ice Cold Man, and I'm pretty sure I named one of them Ashes You Leave as well. Um, Yeah, that's how, and that's the only track on this album that I used as a title. (laughs) I love it. Oh, and right, so here's an interesting factoid for you. Lee Dorian... Now, because Cathedral is no more, Lee Dorian now runs Rise Above Records. And who is signed to Rise Above Records? Ghost. Oh, okay. Ghost Rise Above released the first Ghost album. Now, obviously, Ghost around the world have been are now signed to many, many other bigger distributors and labels. But the first label to release a Ghost album was Lee Dorian's. How about that? That is that is a very good fun fact. Yeah. And you have to think that's probably funded the rest of the label <laughs> for all time. I would imagine, but by giving, you know, bands a chance and giving them their first big break, I mean, it, it then, and think about the, the sort of legend that it builds around the label, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gave them so much credibility. Uh, I mean, not that they didn't have credibility already because Dorian himself is one of those, Again, you know, sort of defiantly indie, 
uh, you know, you can't question his commitment to metal, as it were. Um, right. So they all, the label already had a lot of credibility just from him being the founder, but also then having such success by spotting Ghost and going, yes, that's a band I'm going to release. And yep. then, of course, they become one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. Well, a big thank you that. to him because they're one of my all-time favorite bands now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so uh, moving on, swiftly, pleasingly for you, I'm sure, to <laughs> track seven, The Emerald Law which features Wino from St. Vitus and the Obsessed. I do not die But awaken From I live As above So below I definitely like this song and I just, I like the build of it. I love when he says, uh, I do not die, but awaken from the dream I lived. Yes. It's just such a great way to start. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I think if, if that song before in my mind was a bit of a misstep, like this song pulls us right back into, you know, kick-ass territory. Mm. It's, so the the thing that uh, surprises me a little about this track, like St. Vitus, I don't know how much you know about St. Vitus and the Obsessed. Uh, again, not a lot. It, right, it's all doom metal again. St. Vitus is one of the original doom metal bands from the late 70s, uh, along with bands like Pentagram and Witchfinder General, um, and Trouble, who, funnily enough, appear later on this album. Um, they uh, Their classic album is called Born Too Late, and I think that was the first one with Wino on vocals. Um, they don't groove like you know those those bands those early doom bands don't really groove out in the way that this track does yeah um which always surprised me a little about this track but i do i really like it i also like how it's got it feels like it's got four parts four movements and each one is more rocking than the last and it's hard to tell where the chorus is because you hear a bit and you go oh that's a good chorus oh no wait hang on no this next bit is the chorus oh right. no wait wait no this next bit is the chorus <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's really well written well constructed track uh and i like that fake out ending as well before it sort of smashes back in that i one. was just gonna say that because it does definitely feel like it's on its way out and then it comes crashing back in yeah yeah um and wino sounds really good and this is what like i said he plays guitar on this track um oh i didn't know that yeah 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 which is why i'm surprised that there isn't a bit more going on during the middle eight actually do you know what I mean? It's kind of, yeah, it's, well, for somebody I, who plays guitar, I expected to hear more guitar in that section. I feel like in, this is a, a criticism I've seen of this album overall, is that because 
Grohl drives most of the music on this album, there's been sort of a criticism that it it's a little bit too simplistic in places and it's not pushing the envelope enough. And I feel like even when other people come on and play on this album, they're they're not doing anything crazy with the pieces that they bring to this. You know, it's all pretty straight yeah. ahead. There's nothing like overly complex on on this album in terms of the the structures. And so I feel like that's just a general criticism is that it's a bit simplistic overall of this. I don't know that I feel that way because I think he was trying to capture the vibe of all of these different genres of music without So if you're trying to capture a vibe, you're you you're going to capture the core elements of it as opposed yeah. to you know the more uh the elements of that genre that really stretch the boundaries because you're yeah. trying to write a love letter to this is the stuff I grew up listening to and really love. Yeah, I I'd, I'd agree with that. But also I think there's an element of uh, you know, yeah, the other musicians coming on, just sort of not playing down because that makes it sound like a negative, but just playing appropriately. I agree. Like, with you. I totally like staying within the song. Yeah, because yep. you, you, as you say, you hear this and you're like, oh, okay, this is really stripped down. You know, this is it is simplistic, sure. Um, but it was clearly designed to be that way, and you can argue it's because Grohl at the time, maybe even now, is not a virtuoso musician in the way that some of these people are. But clearly, that was how he wanted the album to sound. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if you're coming on and guesting, you want to do something that fits with the rest of the music. I think it shows a great respect for that they had for what he was trying mm. to do. To not be like, yeah, 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 this is good, but here, what if we did this? Right. Now, or, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Like, oh, that's a good rough draft that you sent me. Let me jazz it up a little bit and give it back to you, and then let's do this. You know, even with... um Cronus doing, you know, three versions of the song. He was like, you, t- you tell me, dude, here's three versions, whatever works best for you. So right. I, I do love that there's this kind of uh, mutual respect of, you know, him reaching out to, to some of his heroes and then being like, yeah, cool, dude, I'll play along with this. This is, this is uh, clearly respectful and, and, you know, all about what you love about our music. So I'm, what you're showing me is what I'll go along with. Yeah. Yeah, and also I do wonder for some of them because obviously most of these guys are long-time veterans of the scene. I wonder if for some of them actually it was quite fun to go back to, to just doing get back to basics, right? Doing something that sounded like it might have been recorded in a garage. Yeah, yeah, because you get to that point too where it all just gets so complicated, right? Nothing ever get like, and I think too the older that you get, right, you strive for simplicity. Yes. Like on your, on your, as you know, as someone who's in their mid to late forties now, you just get to a point where it's like, how can this be simpler as opposed to more complex? Right. Right. What you look, because it's because you're looking for uh, this, I believe anyway, you're looking for the quality of artistry rather than artifice. Right. So, and I'll give you a good example. Uh, I, as we record the Mac pro, has just recently been released. Yes. And me being a big old nerd and Mac head, I've been watching a few uh, video reviews of it and stuff. And there was one where a guy gave the Mac Pro to a couple of music producers, modern day music producers, to use to record a new song and said, here, stress test this, go nuts. Now, this thing is so ridiculously powerful that they didn't even come close to stress testing it, even with uh, logic projects of like 150 plus tracks. Yeah. But... But that's that's the bit that I'm thinking about here because all it was was a few 
simple rhythms and, you know, a bit of instrumentation and a very, very good female singer in the booth. And that was, that was the entire track. And I was looking at it going, how, how can this be like a hundred or more tracks? What is there? Where is all this? And they had all these loads of effects and, yeah. uh, you know, like the equivalent of pedals, I guess, if you like, but it's all digital, obviously, these days. Uh, loads of plugins and effects and stuff on every single track. I know, as I say, partly they were doing it to stress test the computer, but they also made clear that this is how they normally work anyway. And the whole, t- and then, and they played it and it was fine. But then here's the kicker at the end of the video, they do another performance of it with just the singer and a guy playing the tune on the piano. And it's so much better. It's so oh, much dude. better that way. I mean, even just from a podcasting standpoint, right? Like the the amount of work that you put into this show and and bringing in the audio samples and things like that, like it could be a lot more complicated than that, right? If we wanted oh, to yeah. make it overly gotcha. complex, because then you're, what if we decided to add audio clips from every interview that these guys have ever done? Or whenever we mention another band, we'll pull in an audio clip from that band too, and we'll have them be in there. And there is that tendency, especially early on in the life of a project, to be like, yeah, let's do all of that. And then you just get to a point where you're like, is that is it diminishing returns? Uh, right. Is it, you know, are you are you achieving what you want to achieve, but making it overly complex? And I think we just get to a point where we strip it. I remember when with Secret Identity, we did that so much where there was like the early episodes were like audio samples and all of this other stuff. And it was like, it didn't add anything. Like it wasn't, it wasn't relevant to what we were trying to do. And it just created, it it made the process so much more cumbersome, which when you're trying to be organized and on a schedule, it just, uh, it it just doesn't work. So yeah, there is a lot to be said for being able to really strip it down to the core essence of what you're trying to do and keep it simple. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, uh, moving on from that to track eight, big sky featuring Tom G warrior, Thomas Gabriel warrior, bless him of Celtic frost. Yeah, this is another one that for me wasn't it didn't it didn't hit as well as the other one. So I would say, you know, Ice Cold Man and Big Sky, I think are the two that didn't really hit. I mean, I like some of the industrial feel of this song. I like sort of the the one two pattern of it, uh, but it just feels compared to the other ones, even though we just talked about how it's good to be stripped down and good to be simplified, like this song feels just very 
I don't want to say lazy, but it's super repetitive and it just doesn't do even more so I think than like the, where I would appreciate that with the Motorhead song, this song's almost five minutes long and I just feel like it doesn't do enough to justify almost five minutes. And I, I think that's, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I, I think I like this track more than you by the sounds of it. This is quite a good pastiche of mid-era Celtic Frost. And it is a good riff, simple, heavy. Tom's vocals work well over it. Uh, you know, less of the sort of shout growling that uh, he used to do in a lot of their earlier stuff. And it is a simple track, nothing wrong with that. It's a mood piece for me as much as anything. You know, this is very much kind of, this is one of the most atmospheric tracks Agreed. on the album, I think. But I agree that it could be three minutes long and still be just as good. Uh, and that's the only, that's my main criticism of it is that it outstays its welcome. Um, I do, however, enjoy Grohl's attempts at a solo. Yeah. <laughs> I know how he feels. I'm like that as well. I'm like, no, 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 this is not for me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think if it, if it had hit a three-minute mark, I would have liked it more for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, there's not a lot to say about it other than that because it is such a simple, straightforward track. I like the lyrics. I think Tom's lyrics are really, really good on this, actually. I mean, they're typical Celtic Frost, very gothic metal lyrics um you know my world has died all gusts and leaves your wondrous life and love has ceased and all you've touched is dead and gone and night for night we're both alone i mean <laughs> that's very oh yeah for us. <laughs> it hurts inside the silence this silence new and yet i know the wind is you yeah you know <laughs> it's like say yeah it's uh you know that's celtic frost if you yeah. like those lyrics you'll like celtic frost <laughs> yeah absolutely but yeah i agree it does kind of overstay its welcome a bit uh, so let's not overstate ours. Move on to track nine, uh, Dictatorsaurus featuring Snake of Voivod. Yeah, this one again picks up the pace from the previous song. It's it's a little more it, it, to me. It starts a little more proggy, but then it gets a little more poppy. This of all the songs on this album, I actually feel like this is the closest to a Foo Fighters song. From what oh. I know of the Foo Fighters sound, like I almost feel like this would not be unwelcome on a because Foo Fighters of the album. Yeah, it's the chorus, you know, it? yeah. the, the more melodic parts of it. Um, it definitely gets heavier as the song goes on. 
but it definitely to me feels more uh almost a little more rocky that's fascinating right okay so i'm not that familiar with voivod uh i think i've mentioned that before on the show nor am i it's kind of it is a kind of a shameful blank spot because i know they are an important band and i'm just not familiar with them at all um so i have no idea how close this is to a typical voivod track it is a good track it's a good rocker but i hadn't even thought about that but you're absolutely right i could imagine Grohl singing this chorus like in the foo fighters yeah, For this sure. could absolutely be a Foo Fighters chorus, couldn't it? And it's the only track on the album where you can really say that. Right, and it's the only track on the album that I feel like when I look at the cover, maybe doesn't fit the vibe of the cover. Because that's, I don't know if we mentioned that, but that was another thing that I think is so great about that opening track, is you look at that, you know, robotic monstrosity on the cover of the album, and then you listen to that first song, and it's a perfect match. It's just a perfect, like, otherworldly match for what they're trying to do. It sets the atmosphere so well. And this is, like, the only song for me that doesn't feel like it fits within that. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, who who does the cover art? Oh, I'll album? tell you right now, because it's, it it's is... It's a famous guy, isn't it? Uh, it's actually Voivod drummer Michael Langevin. And that's why I was trying to remember. I was trying to remember if it was the guy who also does Voivod's al- album covers, and it is, isn't Which it? Which is yeah. ironic, because the song featuring the Voivod guy feels like the only song that doesn't match the vibe <laughs> of the cover created by the Voivod guy. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah, It is super weird. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I again, maybe it sounds like I like this song maybe a little bit more than you. I like the pre-chorus. I think the the pre-chorus with those rising single string notes is really good. And the for chorus sure. itself is fantastic. Yep. Um, agreed. I, uh, I do like this song for sure. Oh, okay. Okay. The, my issue with it actually is that I think it's let down by the end. It just kind of stops without it. There's no proper climax yes. to it. And the song sounds so big because of that chorus that it's a letdown. You know, it feels like it should have a proper ending, a real climax to it. Right. It sounds like it's um, almost an editing mistake, the way the song ends. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. No, you're right, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously it's not, but yeah. It's, but it's, uh, it's just so abrupt that it does, it doesn't feel like you've gotten a good place to, you, you've gotten closure. Yeah. It's a shame. Um, so let's move on to track 10, My Tortured Soul, featuring Eric Wagner of Trouble. Suck. 
This song feels very sort of big rock vibe to me. It also feels a little Led Zeppelin-y to me. Oh, um, yeah. I feel like the drums are by far the heaviest part of the song. Um, and then like about two minutes, two and a half minutes on the way through, it gets a little like Stone Temple Pilots. It's But it has, a, it has this sort of bombastic and fun vibe to it. It just feels like big rock to me. Which is funny because Trouble, as I said, is another of those very early Doom bands that I mentioned before. Yeah, this does not feel doomy at all to me. But this feels more rock no, to I me. disagree. I, to me, this feels like quite a doomy track in the Sabbath style. It's got that Sabbath-y groove to it, I think. Um, well, I will defer to your experience with Doom <laughs> for sure. Like, but in terms of like my in my mind, it it felt more uh, like Zeppelin-y. Yeah, no, no, I can see the Zeppelin comparisons. Absolutely, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. I can see those comparisons. I really like this track, except for the chorus. I don't think the chorus is strong enough. Like everything else about it is is great. You know, even the the post-chorus guitar noodling bit, um, but the chorus itself just. Mm, you know, doesn't quite reach the heights of the rest of the song, which, uh, which, yeah, I think is a great shame. Um, the, the middle eight and the outro bit where he sings like, I wish it would rain reminds me of typo negative. Oh, okay. As listening and only just recently, like that hadn't occurred to me until I was listening to it in prep for this show. And then I came to that bit and I was like, I really like this bit. Oh my God. I know why <laughs> reminds me of typo. <laughs> It's, I mean, not just lyrically, but I mean, literally in the, the way he sings it in sure. the music. Yeah. Um, yep. But it is a rocking track. Yeah. It's, uh, I do. I do. I like it. Yeah. I will say that it doesn't sound, I mean, it, talking about how doomy it is, it doesn't sound a lot like what I've heard anyway of Trouble. Um, okay. You know, I wouldn't, if you really like this track, I wouldn't go looking for Trouble, haha, um, looking for Trouble Records, assuming that you'd get the same. I don't think you will. Um, but yeah, I yep. do like this one. Uh, and then track 11, which uh, I suspect you are going to like a lot more than me, is Sweet... I effing love this it's song. Sweet Dreams featuring King Diamond of Merciful Fate and Kim Thale again on guitar. Go to sleep. I'm watching you, but you can't see me. It's so good. 
I mean, dude, just, first of all, you had me at King Diamond, right? So, but I think that as compared to what people think of when they think of Merciful Fader, they think of King Diamond, which is just like the high singing, right, you know, right off the bat. I love the sinister, you know, theatrical stuff that King Diamond does. And I feel like this song is just dripping with it. You know, the whole like whispers in the beginning, almost like wind chimey effect where you're, you can't, you feel like there's words there, but you can't really make them out. I love that it builds up. Uh, speaking of Kim Thale, like this actually has kind of a, a, a black hole sun vibe to it a little bit, I think. Um, but just his like, the story that he's telling here, I'm clawing at your skin. You got to let me in. And when he says in, he just goes super high with it. Um, I love it. And I love the, you, you kind of are waiting for like, what is the thread through this? And then in the last sort of bunch of lyrics, he sort of tells a story. I need your soul to pay my way out of here. Let me into your dreams. I'm burning up. You got to let me in. You got to get me out of this fire. Get me out of hell. And that's how the kind of the song ends. And I just love that he just goes for it the whole time. And I love the slow kind of build to it. I just, I, I love it. Great atmosphere. Um, King Diamond. Love it. Yeah. Well, this, this is one where I'll defer to you because I mean, this is where you run the risk with a pastiche album is uh, like this to me sound does sound like a great faithful pastiche of a merciful fate track. The problem is that I don't like Merciful Fate. <laughs> yeah. So that is the risk you run. Um, but I will say, and again, I, I gave this a bit more thought uh, than I have previously, to be perfectly honest with you, because King Diamond's voice just just turns me off. There's something about his voice sure. I just can't get into. Um, but I think maybe that's, that's the problem. Uh, and that if you took his voice out and put somebody else in there, who could sing over the same kind of very melodramatic music. Cause I have no problem with melodramatic music as we've sure. talked about before, you know, look at the Halloween album for heaven's sake. Um, I think if you gave this same music to somebody like Michael Kiska or even a Peter Steele from oh, Typo, okay. yeah. you know, then I, and even maybe even singing the same lyrics, but just with a different voice and a different style of singing, then, then maybe it would be a track that I liked, you know, because musically I can appreciate it, but, it's just his voice. I just can't do yeah. it. I just love that over the course of the song, he gets more and more frantic yeah. because his, <laughs> because what he starts off as like, you know, as this sort of uh demon who's trapped in hell, who's trying to bargain his way out. And he, you know, it starts off as trying to convince, you know, let me into your dreams. And then as the song goes on, like it, it gets more and more panicked because it's not working. Right. And, and he's getting more and more desperate as the song goes on. And I just love that. It actually reminded me of if, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Mr. Be Gone by Clive Barker, um, no. which is about a demon that's trapped in a book. And, and as you're reading the book, the demon's talking to you. Um, it's awesome. I, I love Clive Barker and that is, um, one of my favorites from him. But it reminded me so much of Mr. Be Gone. And I think that's what made me love this song even more. So, yeah, love it. I love the theatricality of it. It's great. All right. Uh, and then technically, that is, you, technically, that's the last track. If you oh, listen to this on a CD, but it's not. Yeah. You get, again, this was the era of CDs, everyone. Uh, so you get three and a half minutes of silence. And then uh, I guess what is really track 12 which is I Am The Warlock, featuring Jack Black. 
which may be my favorite song on the album. I mean, it is, it's so good. It's so fucking cheesy. It's and yet so, it's so good. Great, dude. Yes, yes. A hundred times, yes. It is so, first of all, very Black Label Society sort of vibe to uh, the riff. And and again. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, big, bombastic and big. And freaking Jack Black, dude. I like. How good him. is he? I love him. I You know, a, a lot of people are you know, not that big into Tenacious D anymore. I know their later records were diminishing returns and it's easy to dismiss Jack Black as a, you know, uh, as a comedian or someone who's maybe not taking it seriously. The guy's freaking great. And this song is awesome. This, I mean, yeah. And he clearly, again, like Grohl clearly is, you know, a, a metal head. I mean, Huge not even that much of a dude. closet yes. metal head, but yeah. Um, this track has no right to be as good as it is. It's fucking awesome. It, it's a comedy track. It's a hidden track at the end of the CD, but it, it grooves. It's heavy. It's doomy. And Black's vocals are really fucking good. They're really so great, good. dude. How he delivers them is perfect. The stupid lyrics themselves are great. I like want to write a D&D campaign about this <laughs> character as the main antagonist <laughs> of the actual <laughs> D&D campaign. Like, just a badass warlock who's here to take over the world like it's so good i I, this song makes me happy that it's on yeah this album i'm so glad that he let jack black do this for this album that's exactly it for me is that it is it is ridiculous it is just kind of over the top and everything but it glories and relishes in so much you know the hot, yeah, the unabashed. I'm gonna fuck your life up. I'm oh, gonna it's crush so good, your dude. soul. <laughs> and when you think about that as the bookend to the first song with Cronus, that right. is also over the top. Like it is the perfect front and back end to this album. Like I could not be happier with how this album opens and closes. I freaking well, love it. And the other thing that I think makes this such a perfect closer is that. It does kind of remind us all to, you know, remember to laugh at yourself occasionally and don't take yourself entirely too seriously. You know, we are, this is nevertheless all still about entertainment and having fun. A hundred percent, dude. And and this music is, uh, it is cathartic and you do go to it when you're, when you're in a dark place and when you're sort of dealing with stuff, but it's also fun and it's, and there's a joy to loving rock and loving metal and, that you know it's just great to be reminded of that and and i I just love the reckless abandon and i I will say that again about grohl's playing through this entire album especially the drums just a joyful abandon that he's playing with here that you can feel in every song like i just i just in my head he's grinning from ear to ear as he's playing through all of these songs and i think that is what's really captured on this last song and sort of reminds you of like, yeah, this is a love letter. This whole album is a love letter and everyone who participated in it, they get that. Yeah. I would really love to know if he wrote this song, the the music of this song, knowing that he was going to give it to Jack Black. Like, I think was that the- Black wrote the guitar part for this song. I, oh, I may be mistaken he? about that, but I think he had a hand in creating the song, if I'm oh, not okay, mistaken. Okay. So that would, yeah, that would absolutely fit, as you say, with the sort of reckless abandon with which he plays on this track. Because I was just thinking, you know, did he think that this was going to be a serious track, but then he thought, oh, I'll give this one to Jack and see how it turns out. But clearly not, yeah. And the thing about Jack Black is, dude, the way he sings 
and delivers his vocals is anything but formulaic. You know, just the, just yeah. his uh, his little flares that he adds and and how he speeds up and slows down and how he you know goes to the end of his range and all that stuff. It's it is there's so much energy in the way that he sings and I just love it and it's perfect in this you know this and both cocky, ends of that range. Yeah, totally. That's the other thing. Like he can do a good. Uh, you can hear it here. He can do a really good proper growl, and yep. also we know he can scream because he does that all the time in Tenacious D. But there's some good growling on this track. I just love this badass, cocky warlock that he is. You know, he's just here to kick ass and yeah. take names. I just love <laughs> Be- it because I am the warlock. I'm, yeah, the, the title alone just makes you laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's so great, dude. Like I, it, it, uh, I want to write stories about this character now. Like right. I, it just made me. It, laugh every time that i hear it just how he delivers it i wish there was a video for this it is total teenage D denim wearing 100 like yeah <laughs> yeah which makes it perfect for this album absolutely and that's the end of the album um like i say it's one of my favorite albums i i will make no bones about that it's not perfect by any means but there is such joy love and energy running through it from start to finish uh, you know, even on the slower tracks like Ice Cold Man or something, like everything is just such so obviously a labor of love um, that I find it infectious. I absolutely love it. I'm so glad you picked this album, dude. Like, because I I did not know what I was missing with this, and it also made me want to go back and dig more into these bands that I don't have a ton of history with. You know, like Celtic Frost again, mm. uh, limited you know knowledge with them, like DRI who again were are very respected in the scene and I have some familiarity with but not I don't know their catalog and so like lots of uh lots of good stuff to dig into for perhaps future episodes of the Thrash It Out podcast who's to say you know indeed you never know uh and so yeah on that note we'll say merry christmas happy holidays happy hanukkah happy kwanzaa whatever you celebrate uh, over the holiday period have a good time enjoy yourself be well, and we will return at some point early in the new year with Volume 5 of Thrash It Out. Well, Bring it on. Cannot wait. Volume 5. Can you believe it, man? I cannot believe it. How long have we been doing this now? Did we, I, did don't we... Even, <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. Thanks again. You know, as we, as we celebrate the holidays, again, extremely thankful for this awesome community around this podcast. You all make it so much fun to continue to do this show. I mean... For Anthony and I, it's always been about getting together as friends and talking about the music that we love. To have this community become such a huge part of that and share that with us and and bring us to new music and all of that stuff is just so awesome. And uh, I can't wait for more of it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. All right, everyone. So here's to 2020. See you next year. Keep thrashing. Take care. Dare I say it, this might wind up being one of our shorter episodes. (laughs)